All right, welcome to episode 58 of Seize the Moment podcast. And today we welcome back Yolanda Denae. She's the creator of The Sassy Rant, a brand and blog that discusses the real-life accounts of a millennial woman on the verge of changing the world. Through hosting her annual Cocktail Conversations events, Yolanda takes on the task of addressing societal misconceptions as they pertain to men and women of color. In her own words, we're not what they say we are, but what we know ourselves to be. Welcome, Yolanda. Hi. Thank you guys for having me again. And thank you so much for coming back on. And so, of course, obviously today, kind of the things that we talked about beforehand. Um, so we're pretty much going to talk about a pretty somber topic today. And so I want to start off asking Yolanda about a blog post she recently wrote about the passing of George Floyd. And so, Yolanda, can you tell us a little bit about the post, what it meant to you, and some of your thoughts and feelings regarding his passing? Um, I was hesitant to write about George Floyd. I was hesitant to watch the video of the murder of George Floyd. Um, I'm 27 and I have seen more men and women who look like me killed by people who do not look like me on film. Um, and that's not something that you see and it leaves you. When you see those types of images and those videos and that audio, it stays with you for forever, I, I suppose, because they haven't left me yet. Um, so I was hesitant to talk about or to write or even, like I said, watch the video of George Floyd. Um, it wasn't until a friend of mine reached out to me and told me that it was a family member of his. And then, of course, like constantly being inundated with these videos, I'm like, whatever, I'm just going to watch. I watched the video and I'm not shocked by what happened. I'm not angry or disappointed, I can say, at the police. And I know a lot of people were probably side-eyeing me because of that statement. Um, I think my expectations of situations like these would have to be a lot higher in order for me to be disappointed. I've seen it too many times to expect a different outcome. So my level of disappointment is more so with the people who look like I do who stood sideline and watched and did not intervene. I mean, I think for us, it's a bit different, obviously. I mean, we are disappointed with people of our own race. And so what's interesting now, um, I mean, we definitely want to obviously go into kind of the sort of scope of obviously Black Lives Matters and everything kind of that's been going on with the protests, but just, I guess, kind of a bit on the side. So what's been going on here now is that, so like we live in Brooklyn and mm -hmm. Diker Heights here have been having like these counter protests for Blue Lives Matters. And so what usually happens is racism here, at least is pretty covert where like, I mean, you pretty much get like these sort of microaggressions and I guess something that's between sort of micro and macro aggressions where it's kind of there but it's kind of not and it's very easy to be explained away for the person to say ah well you know i wasn't really being racist and so what's been going on the past weekend is essentially like you pretty much had overt racism during these these protests in diker heights so um our friend, uh, so this was something, so our friend Liz, she's friends with Matt, who's, um, so he's a member of the Democratic Socialists of America. And so he was, this, and this is just something that was, to, a story that was told to us. So I don't want sort of Matt to get mad and be like, oh, I never told you guys this. So this is like a secondhand story. Yeah, secondhand story from Liz, right? So, um, so Liz was telling us that essentially Matt was in one of these protests. And so essentially like these people who, um, you know, kind of are, I guess, seemingly supposedly part of the sort of protector class of society, they essentially ended up attacking a bunch of the protesters and, you know, our kind of our acquaintance, Matt, was one of them. And so what was so, I guess, interesting and so pretty despicable and pathetic was the fact that these people were so overtly racist, where if you look at some of these videos, they'll pretty much blatantly scream out racial slurs. They'll sort of verbally and even physically, you see them attacking and assaulting protesters. And what's so crazy is that these are literally men in their 50s, 60s, some of them even in their 40s, and they're literally attacking kids, like a bunch of teenagers who are out there protesting against, obviously, the sort of the main protests. And so what for us is like, obviously, we understand kind of from your perspective what it's like, you know, when you talk about sort of the bystanders. But from us, from our, at least from my perspective, I obviously don't want to speak for Alan. Um, from my perspective, what was so disgusting is the fact that now it's actually gone to the point where these people can just be overtly racist and say, well, it's OK, because we're protecting the cops. So it's like everything that we're doing makes sense. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, it's 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 terrible because it's weird. It's um, if somebody is trying to represent, let's say, Black Lives Matter, 
right? And then somebody else is coming from another side being like, no, uh, all lives matter, right? And there's this weird argument going on, which is, it's it's the strangest argument I've seen in, in the world. I mean, obviously, like if you watch the video with George Floyd, you see the officer for eight minutes, 46 seconds, have his knee on uh, this gentleman's neck, on George Floyd's neck, longer than you're supposed to, not even the right way to handle a situation like that. He wasn't resisting, could have just cuffed him. There's so many ways you could have handled that situation. And why this movement matters is because there have been th stuff like this that's been reported uh, like so many times on the news mm -hmm. that it's something that people are almost used to seeing, which is not natural. Like if you want to talk about what's natural, that's the most unnatural thing to see a trend of, of black people constantly having like being like killed by the police. Mm -hmm. Now I'm sure there's examples. I'm sure you could find it where somebody has been mistreated, you know, who's white and this and that and all that. But right now it's not, like their their time like right now it's it's a time to be like okay do you see guys see this trend we want to take care of it this is already frustrating it's beyond frustrating i'm not even saying it the right way right now mm -hmm. and the way uh it's so weird to have people who are saying no 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 all lives matter all this when it's it's like as if they're not appreciating the seriousness of what's going on right now and i don't know to me that's it's weird to see people argue, especially if one person saying all lives matter, another person saying like black lives matter. You're essentially saying that lives are matter, but lives matter, but you want to like have an argument about it. Right. It's like almost to find anything to argue about. Yeah. And it's weird, you know? And Yolanda, have you encountered sort of any of these people that have pushed back against the Black Lives Matter movement? No. Yeah. <laughs> not. I think, um, I've seen people online, of course, trolling the way that they do. Um, I choose not to engage. Um, the Sassy Rant specifically is a space for us. I don't want people to come to that space to have to read negative comments and to read negative, hateful, nasty remarks. So I delete them, I block them. Um, and it, it, it boils my blood to just have to do so and to just walk away and to not say anything or to engage it. But I think part of that is also part of the Black existence with being taught to not engage, to not argue, to not say anything as if that's going to stop it from happening. And when I say that I'm upset with onlookers and bystanders, this is what I mean. Because we've stood sideline. We have not engaged. We have been slapped on one side and turned the other side to be slapped again, to be spit on, to be kicked, to be beaten, and have chosen, have been taught, I don't want to say chosen, have been taught to stand back because, you know, um, the only thing that can, can outshine hate is love, and you have to love your enemy, and you have to pray for people, and you have to hope that one day it's going to be, I'm, I'm not, I'm past that. And I'm not telling anybody to go on a wrecking spree to do this or to do that. But what I am saying is defend yourself. What I am saying is that it will not happen on my watch. I will not stand silent and watch anything happen to anybody who looks like me, first and foremost. Anybody who's being unfairly treated, no matter what they look like, I have always, it has always been my first nature to step in and to intervene. So it just baffles me how time after time we've seen these instances of children of elderly of adults of whomever being mistreated and murdered and we know what happened we know there is no due process we know there is no fair day in court we know that there is no justice for these people so instead of reacting we stand there numb and can go home at the end of the day and say hey i saw a man get murdered today and the way that I see it, I would much rather go home and say, I got kicked around by the police. We all got our asses kicked today, but that person went home. We all went home. Instead of saying, I, I watched somebody be murdered. I stood sideline and didn't intervene, did not. There were too many people on the sidewalk, in my opinion. Too many of them to not, hey, we're going to have a shove match then if that's what the case is, but you're going to get off his neck. And I think... 
with everything, just this pandemic and everybody being home and everything being um, exemplified, people are starting to pay attention. And I'm glad people are starting to pay attention. We've been talking about this shit for too long. We've been crying for too long. We have been pleading to see us for way too long. And I'm tired and so many other people were tired too. Yeah. And that sort of brings to mind a Pac quote where he said, you know, kind of, you know, first we start off and we're sort of singing, you know, we are, we are hungry, please let us in. We yeah. are hungry, please let us in. Right. And then sort of yeah. like little by little, right. It kind of increases, right. Well, you're now you're kind of banging the door. And then finally, man, he's like, you know, we're picking the lock and we're kind of breaking through. And what I love so much about it is that essentially what Pac was telling you was like, dude, like at the end of the day, man, what do you expect from people who are literally downtrodden, right. For people who are kicked around by society. Like, um, and man, I hate to, keep bringing this up because like our neighborhoods are honestly not all of them obviously but definitely a big chunk of them are like disgraces so um so we also had like in the sheeps of bay community here we had a bunch of people who like like oh they formed like vigilante sort of um committees right where they were like oh we're gonna like protect the neighborhood and you know we're gonna make sure that no cops are beaten up and then you know we're gonna make sure the looters like don't get in or whatever whatever so point is that what was so interesting about that is that like they never when people say stuff like that they never take a look at the bigger picture right? Which is what Pac was trying to tell us. Like at the end of the day, man, like nobody's trying to say that like, first of all, nobody got looted in Sheep's Bay for what I know, at least my understanding. That's number one. Number two is like at the end of the day, if we're talking about a system that you benefit from, like what did you want people to do who got constantly kicked around? Like, did you literally think that they would just kind of keep, keep protesting peacefully with nothing happening? And then like all of a sudden decide, oh, okay, whatever, we're just going to kind of lie down and accept things as they are. It just, it doesn't make any sense. So if we're talking about seeing the bigger picture and you're looking at it and you're saying like okay here are these people that are gonna loot us like don't you have the sense to think like oh man maybe we should like help them like maybe we should sort of band with them and maybe we should understand and try to empathize with their struggle like why is it that we have businesses and they don't have businesses is there some way that maybe we unjustly benefited from this system that they obviously couldn't like it's just so interesting how people are so kind of narrow-sighted and narrow-minded in their thinking not just that it's like how do you you know how do you tell someone that feels like, you know, enough is enough. Like I've seen too much of this already. Like this has to stop now, right? There's a point where people will take things, right? And maybe sometimes they turn the other cheek or maybe they take, I, I agree that like you should show, like, you know, that saying that uh, Yolanda, you were saying earlier, like show love to your enemies and, and stuff like that. I'm with that. But the thing is when you see something not work, right then it makes you want to be like okay i feel insane doing the same thing over and over again i want to try something else you know and that's 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 that quote right if you do the same thing over and over again that's the definition of insanity that's why you should try something else mm -hmm. so i mean it's it's weird how people don't understand the the frustration in the black community and not even just that it's also like if if we didn't have this kind of reaction right the kind of things that are happening right now in the news would not be happening. Like there's this thing called uh, Article 50A. Mm -hmm. uh, we talked about it with um, Borough President Eric Adams uh, some weeks ago. Yeah. And pretty much uh, that lets you see the records of police uh, that before were hidden. So you could kind of see their history and you could kind of see like, who are you making the leader of this precinct? And like, did they have, you know, like a kind of a racist background or bad behavior? Like, who are we picking to be in charge of, you know, the other policemen and stuff like that? Right. Um, there's this huge conversation of, you know, uh, of reforming the police, which that might not have happened if there was no, if there wasn't this huge response, it might've been just a new, like a story that would have just gotten a reaction out of people, but then it would have just went on to the next story and the next story and the next story. Right. So you, you need sometimes stuff like this to, to get people's attention. If, or if there's a better way, show us a better way, but we see that it's easy for things to kind of get buried. And then you go to the next thing in the news or the next stimulating thing. And like a story that was so important, like two days ago, now it's this new thing. But what's great about this movement is it's, it's key, it keeps going. Mm -hmm. It's actually staying relevant, yep. you know, mm -hmm. and that's important.
Yeah. And just to add on to that, so what's interesting is that this is a quote, according to the, Lu the Los Angeles Times, the cuts would be relocated, this is obviously the cuts for the LAPD, would be relocated toward youth jobs, health initiatives, and peace centers to help heal trauma and will allow those who have suffered discrimination to collect damages. So like, mm. then talk about real change. And so Yolanda, so what are your thoughts on the protests? So what do you think about some of the things that have come out of them? Um, I think in regards to your last statement about um, the quote you just read, mm -hmm. I think that is the bigger picture. I think understanding that all of these issues are interconnected, that poor policing and access to jobs and access to quality health care and housing and education, all of these issues are interconnected. It just so happens that police brutality took the lead on, on this conversation conversation this go round. But I do think that that type of initiative should be mirrored throughout urban communities everywhere, because everywhere we're experiencing the same type of thing. So I definitely agree with that type of plan and action to, to be beneficial. As far as the protests go, I was not outside protesting. Um, I was not in a space to be peaceful or to, to protest. I think that it's important to understand the role that you play in history, are you going to be someone who plays a part of the financial regard with donating funds to help individuals to receive aid, to donate to um, organizations that are helping people with bail funds and everything like that? Um, are you somebody who's on the front line and you're out there and you're, you know, you're protesting? Are you somebody who is writing letters and drafting memos and it's important to understand what your role is. And my role was not peacefully protesting because that was not, and that was not the space that I was in. I was not in the mood to sing Kumbaya, to beg for, please see me, see me. I, I was not there. I'm still not there. Um, but I do think it's a necessary part of this work to have people on the ground. So people in restaurants or not restaurants at this time, but sitting outside, people who are on their porches, employers to see that, oh, these people are blocking the passageway to my billion dollar company and my business as usual is, is being affected. Let me see what they're talking about. So I think every level, every person part of this fight is absolutely relevant and necessary. What I do not agree with is the painting of Black Lives Matter on the streets. I do not support or stand in favor of changing names to Black Lives Matter. This or name, do what you want to make you feel good, but you're just putting flowers on top of shit and telling me it doesn't stink. Mm -hmm. okay. What are we doing to really address the issue? Because it's cute and it's a great photo op for whatever city it is that you live in. And it's great for influencers to go and say, hey, I was here, I took a picture with my drone of this this BLM sign, I stand in solidarity, I'm an ally, but what are you doing? And that's the part, that's the part for me where I'm like, okay, it still stinks in here. You put flowers on top of it, but it still stinks. It smells like pure shit in here and you're giving me flowers and you're saying, but it's not that bad. It's getting better, but is it? So. And then I do have a question for the both of you guys. So, I mean, in terms, obviously, one of the kind of hottest topics of debate has been like, what do we do with the police system, right? So, obviously, Minneapolis, I mean, they disbanded it all. To, not, was it Minneapolis? Yeah, it was Minneapolis. Minneapolis. Yeah, so they disbanded it all together, right? I mean, what's that going to look like? I obviously, I don't know. Um, so, I wanted to kind of get your take on if you guys actually think the police system can be reformed or whether you feel like kind of it needs to be disbanded altogether. But before I actually do that, I wanted to read something to you guys from an article from Vox, which really just like, blew me away mm. and so like this was to me like don't get me wrong i mean this i guess when you kind of look at it it's not that crazy but just to kind of hear it from people who are in the system and who actually like pretty much are what would you even call them i guess they're pretty much experts on policing and you know people who have been there for ages i mean to kind of hear it from their mouth to me has just been like whoa like what a revelation even though i mean obviously to some extent we knew it so this is from an author named Zach Bucamp, and he wrote this article on Vox on police, uh, police ideology. And so he wrote, police officers across America have adapted a set of beliefs about their work and its role in our society. The tenets of police ideology are not codified or written down, but are nonetheless widely shared in departments around the country. The ideology holds that the world is a profoundly dangerous place. 
officers are conditioned to see themselves as constantly in danger and that the only way to guarantee survival is to dominate the citizens they're supposed to protect. The police believe they're alone in this fight. Police ideology holds that officers are under siege by criminals and are not understood or respected by the broader citizenry. These beliefs, combined with widely held racist stereotypes and racial stereotypes, push officers toward violent and racist behaviors during intense and stressful street interactions. So then the question is, knowing that this is true and knowing that obviously like in terms of how beliefs work, it's very hard to change people's beliefs, right? So you can't just really say like here kind of, well, I mean, let me not kind of get ahead of myself, but the idea is it would be very hard to say that, okay, here we're going to implement, you know, these sort of new tactics and we're going to implement these training programs and we're going to expect you guys to behave differently. So my question is to the both of you, right? And obviously we can start off with Yolanda is, do you think that it's possible to reform policing when literally this is their belief system, a belief system that they've held on to for literally probably since their inception? That's a really good question. <laughs> um, hmm. What I will say is, I don't think it's possible to change what's in a person. I don't think it's our responsibility to go ahead and try to change what's inside of a person. I think that there should be consequences for bad actions. I do think that if there are consequences in place, you, you are assigned to this job to do this job this specific way. We're going to clearly define what this role is and how you do it. Anything outside of that has a consequence, which currently it does not. I don't care if I don't I, I don't care if you don't like me. But if your job is to keep me safe and I call and I say, hey, I'm in danger, you have an obligation to protect me, no matter what you feel about me. It's not my job to try to say, hey, I want you to love me. I want you to see me as your equal. I want you to that's not my job. And I don't think that it's possible for any of us, we'll be talking until we're blue in the face, to try to change what is deeply rooted inside of people. And we shouldn't have to. What you feel deeply inside of you, should if, if, this is, if this is a job that conflicts what you feel internally, then don't do that job. But as long as you have that job, there should be consequences and a certain standard that you have to uphold. And anything outside of that standard, then, you know, you, you should be let go. And I think as far as defunding the police and defund them, but then you also run into the issues like you have in Atlanta right now, where police are not coming out to support or to help um, in matters that police are being called for. If it's not for an officer down type of situation, they're not coming. So you can defund the police, but then that opens up, and I'm not saying that you should or should not, but I'm just saying that it opens up another layer to the problem. Now police are not showing up. Police are not coming. Well, you wanted to defund us, so sorry, we're not staffed enough to, to come for the shooting. We're not staffed enough to come for the home invasion or to come for the carjacking. It opens up more issues. And again, I'm not saying that you should or should not do it. I just think that there should be a standard and consequences for any action that is deemed outside of what you should be doing. Now, fish rots from the head, so if we have to change around leadership, then absolutely. You start at the, the highest level first and weed out the ones that needed to be weed out. And then anyone who, you know, is resisting or going against what the new standard is, that lets you know that this is a person who's going to be problematic and who needs to go. Yeah. And it seems like kind of like the public and the way sort of the way the perceptions are that we see as a public, the kind of police system a little bit, not even a little bit, a lot different than the kind of the way they see themselves and their purpose. So Alan, what do you think? First of all, uh, Yolanda, I agree with you 100% on everything you said, um, especially with changing leadership as far as that goes. I, I think that the who the leader is says a lot about how the people under that leader act, right? And I think it's important to know who these leaders are for maybe even the public to be kind of involved with who's in charge of these precincts and all of that. Um, I think it is uh, really hard to change what's inside of a person. That, that's definitely something that's a huge challenge and maybe, maybe something that we shouldn't even really look at. But I do think that if training was better, let me say this before, actually. Uh, I think vetting how you pick somebody to be a police officer is right. really important. Like, it's got to be harder to become a police officer. I think yeah. it, I forgot where I heard this from, 
I think it was, uh, there's this guy, Jocko Willink. He was on uh, Joe Rogan's podcast. Mm -hmm. He's a former Marine. And his take on it was that, uh, if I remember correctly, that to be be in the police, to to become a police officer is easier than it is to get into the army. And he's saying that it has to be at least as hard as that to, you know, kind of pick people who are really qualified for the job. That's one thing he said, too. Uh, that I agree with is you need like to to go over training with uh, with them as much as possible. Mm-hmm. Like you can't just have uh, training once every several months or something. It has to be something that's like a weekly thing just to kind of get people in the right headset, um, teach them about having, you know, emotional strength, not to be so reactive uh, because it, it's it's weird if somebody's so reactive and they're so quick to violence and all this stuff, mm-hmm. that changes the the way an interaction goes from the from the get go from the start, mm-hmm. and that can lead interactions into like into the worst possible places. And if they were more emotionally strong, if they were able to, un, you know, be able to actually listen to the people that you know to investigate a situation not be so quick to action Mm -hmm. that's something so maybe we need like psychological you know intervention or ways to teach them to be in the right space mentally Um, and you know on your point what i never understood was there were like these stories that came out recently uh maybe not that recently maybe sometime just in the past year about like how they found different sort of um social media posts of like officers about like the kkk and stuff and my thinking was i don't understand how there wasn't a background check for this like how didn't you guys know that this person was in some way involved in the kkk before hiring them like you would think like these people who pretty much know well whatever i don't want to say well it's mostly like the nsa but it's still law enforcement on the whole like these people who pretty much have a like bird's eye view into all of our lives to some extent. They have no idea that these people were involved in white supremacy movements. Like that to me is just baffling. Yeah. That's why, again, that's why you need to vet who you're hiring, right? What are their connections? Uh, what's their temperament already? Mm-hmm. How much do they want the job? How much do they want to actually protect and serve and uphold the oath that they take? Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, some people are probably in the job just because it's something that they can do and they can pay for bills and stuff like that. Not everyone is going in with, you know, this high level of morality, like, no, no, no. I, I wanted to be a here, you know, like uh, from a child, from childhood, I always wanted to be a detective or I always wanted to uh, protect and serve and help people and mm-hmm. all that. I'm sure there's people like that, but obviously we know that that's not everybody. And yeah. so something definitely needs to change. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so do you guys then think that policing in some way could still be reformed? Yeah. You think From the top think? down, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I want to read something else to you guys, because this is, I think, going to sort of put a little uh, put a little sort of icing on top of what I was saying before. So this is a little bit about the history of policing. So policing in the United States has always been bound up with the color within the color line. So in the South, police departments emerged out of the 18th century slave patrols, bands of men working to discipline slaves, facilitate their transfer between plantations and catch runaways. In the North, professional police departments came up as a response to a series of mid 19th century urban upheavals. Many of which, like the, like the 1834 New York anti-abolition riot, had their origin in racial strife. So while policing has changed dramatically since then, which the author argues, there's clear evidence of continued structural racism in American policing. The Washington Post's Radley Balco has compiled an extensive list of academic studies documenting this fact, covering everything from traffic stops to the use of deadly force. And if you pretty much look into the data, you see that it's pretty much, there's a substantial difference between the use of, let's say, force and obviously murder in terms of the way it's sort of um, approached toward African-American people and people of cover, color, as opposed to obviously white people. And then he says, research has confirmed that this is a nationwide problem involving a significant percentage of officers. So, right, so we talk about sort of like the idea of like these bad apples, but what the studies are actually showing is that when we're talking about violence, especially with violence toward colored people, and especially with, with toward people of color, and especially toward black people, the idea is that it's systemic, right? That it's widespread. It's not just, you know, maybe one, 2% of the police population. So, you know, kind of I ask again, right, when we look at all of the stats, right, how possible is it? Obviously, we need people to protect us to some extent, right? But does that actually entail the police departments as they stand now? I don't know. 
I mean, there's a there's a reason. So, sorry, go no, ahead. No, no, go ahead, go ahead. No, uh, right. There's there's a reason why there was this huge reaction recently, mm -hmm. right, uh, with the Black Lives Matter movement, right? You, because of this continued structural racism, because this is not the first time that this is happening. Because of that, it's still a problem, but it seems like something is happening right now. With all these conversations that, that we're having, that other people are having too, uh, that's going out to everybody across the country. It's, it's something that is, there, there definitely is something going on where people are saying, no, we really need this to change right now, you know? And I think the fact that we have certain things going on, like uh, defunding the police, uh, or which, by the way, when they're saying defund the police, it's another way of saying reforming the police. Right. So mm -hmm. whatever. Some people get tied. You know, they, that's like a talking point. Right. Like, it doesn't do mean, mean abolish, the, right? It doesn't mean abolish. Yeah. Right. And also it can mean like change the funding. Mm -hmm doesn't necessarily okay but that's a different comment but uh yeah so things like that with certain laws changing uh with this just being a like a social phenomenon that's happening right now i think reform for the police can happen mm -hmm. i think it's realistically is it going to happen overnight if you ask me that no uh but is there a way to make incremental changes I don't want to say it's impossible, right? If if already with the movement, you have enough people so aware of the situation, getting into discussions about this and stuff like that. It's definitely something people care about. And anything you care about deeply enough, if you really want to make changes around it, I'm going to say it's possible. There are, there are examples of us already making changes. They, like certain things socially are better now than they used to be. But they're not ideal, but we're able to make things happen. So I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Yolanda, what are your thoughts on that? Um, I, I just, you know, I stand with it has to happen at the top. I yeah. do think that it is incremental change and there has to be some sort of system of monitoring what these changes are. So in six months, we want to see this happen. In a year, this needs to happen. In 18 months, this needs to happen. So we need some sort of ranking system um, and, and guidelines to kind of see if we're following up with what, what we're talking about. Are we, how are we changing it? What are we doing? Okay, defund the police and then what? Like you said earlier, okay, this, the funds that we're taking away from the police, what are we doing with it? We're not lining the mayor's pockets, are we? Mm -hmm. Are we going to reopen these, these boys and girls clubs that are closing? Are we gonna invest? into the public school system so teachers have the supplies and the resources that they need are we going to build more affordable housing more than just seven units inside of a, a hundred unit building are we actually going to put this money and this energy and this resource and this anger and this this disappointment and this disgust and everything that we're feeling are we going to do something positive with it and what is our metric of measuring when this happens and how it happens and, you know, mm -hmm. there was an interesting idea that Eric had on. So Eric Adams, the Brooklyn Borough president. So he essentially argued that whereas, let's say when we're talking about doctors, that doctors wouldn't essentially all be uh, surgeons. The idea was that, you know, we can't have police who are all doing the same things. So he argued that this person that, you know, was coming to the protests with me, you know, to sort of negotiate and to make sure that everything remained peaceful wasn't necessarily the person that wanted at a drug bust and vice versa. So he said that for him and in his line of work, that for the most part, the people who were coming, you know, pretty much DA agents, um, or at least something along those kind of types, mm -hmm. that essentially they were like hotheads. And he said, look, man, a lot of them are really angry and sort of they've been trained to be that way. And they sort of view everybody or the world as a big, you know, this dangerous place, as indicated in the article. And so he said, when we kind of come to the protests and they're treating people like they're potential drug dealers, right? He didn't say this, I'm saying this. Yeah, depending uh, who you have out there policing the protests. Right, right, right. And it's like, if you're looking at it as, oh, this is the same thing as a drug bust or very similar to it because of the way sort of our brains make associations. The idea is that what we're doing is we're essentially sending people who are really sort of amped up on adrenaline into places that are in themselves, not naturally sort of, you know, kind of violent or aggressive. Obviously that does happen, right? I mean, not in the sense of it doesn't get violent for the most 
most part. But people do tend to act up. I mean, these are protests, right? They're there because people are upset. And the problem is, is that like, let's say, I don't know, if a person screams at you, does that give you the right to beat the shit out of them? I would say no, because I don't care if you're a cop and the guy is saying like, fuck you pig, or you're a piece of shit, or even you need to die or whatever it is, man. People say yeah. stuff like that all the time, right? So obviously I'm not saying it's right. It is what it is. So, but the point is that as a police officer, right? If your job, if you've taken on the duty to sort of, you know, to be around at a protest and to obviously take care of things there, then the idea is that you have to be held accountable for that. And you have to be the person to sort of either, number one, sort of try to de-escalate, or if you feel like you can't do that, right? You would try to make sure to keep the safety for everybody, not just for you, but for the other people as well. And so for Eric, he pretty much said that like, look, we have to have sort of pockets of officers that where we have some officers that are involved in like sort of drug bus, you know, like we have detectives who are like involved in sort of homicide investigations. Um, so what we would do is, right, we would have sort of different types of cops and for protests in particular, right, we would have sort of negotiator type cops where we would have people who are sort of more... I don't want to put words into his mouth, but something like along the lines of more sort of trained in mental health, right? Not necessarily to be counselors or therapists, but to have people to have an extensive sort of training in mental health who are able to come into those sort of like, um, uh, I don't want to use the term volatile, but whatever, sort of kind of heightened situation. And they're able to kind of say like, okay, guys, you know, sort of we're not against you or we're on your side. And we want to make sure that sort of everybody has, you know, the most sort of kind of safe experience possible. The problem is, unfortunately, as we've seen that a lot of these cops weren't doing that. And so, I mean, we thank God for like social media and for sort of taping and everything, you know, kind of the stuff that's been posted on YouTube, because what we're actually seeing is during the protests, look, there were definitely riots. I'm not saying that that didn't happen, right? There were certainly looting, right? Right. But that was so much exponentially smaller than it was when we compared to the cops who were literally beating the shit out of innocent unarmed people. Like, what the fuck was that about? Also, the people uh, in police cars who were running over people right. or pushing them like that, for example, if you had the right kind of person in that situation, mm -hmm. they would know when to show restraint or when to show that that side of them to maybe let something go and let things kind of take their course if something okay so by the way i know that not every single person who's in the protest is a uh, angel right. right of course fine uh so somebody's gonna come in and say that so i i could see that no problem but uh to come in there assuming that everybody is kind of going to be like that and you have this kind of you know everything's going to be danger mode constantly you got to know when to put that on and off and when to when to show restraint and when to actually take action if you're always in attack mode you're going to make other people react and that there's going to cause like a chain reaction and it can cause a bigger issue if you just kind of decided to go in a different direction with it so, I mean, uh, you, you have to have cops with that kind of sense in there, that kind of will, that kind of ability to see the situation and know how to deal with it. Definitely not drive through a crowd in your car. That's insane. Right. Which and, I shouldn't even have to say, but yeah. And, and the idea is essentially like you're allowed to arrest people, right? Nobody's saying that. If somebody's sort of breaking the law in any sense, yes, you can arrest them. You can't drive over them, obviously. You can't throw them to the floor. You can't put them in chokeholds. You can't literally smack them. One guy I remember literally got pepper spray. He actually took off his mask and he sprayed him in the face who was just standing there. Yeah. Like in what, that's what I'm saying about the police department. And, I'm not even necessarily saying that I'm against sort of abolishing it, but really all of this paints a picture, man, that makes it hard for me to think that restructure is possible. That's it. That's kind of all I think about it. No, I don't know. I think, I think all, of this, all of this happens because it, it can. It happens because it can happen. It happens because there's no consequences. It happens because for so long they have been able to act without any repercussions because people have stood aside and allowed this type of treatment because superiors have stood aside and have okayed this type of treatment. And again, there are no consequences or penalties for doing this type of thing. Officers murdered Breonna Taylor. One of them was fired. There are no consequences. Where's the search warrant that mysteriously got, went missing at the time of this whole incident that her mother has been begging for? which is still, where's the search warrant? There's no consequence. There's no consequences for their actions. So this is why like logical, reasonable, reasonable people like us are like, you can't do this. And then they're like, oh yes, we can, because who's gonna stop us? Yeah. 
That's why when you see somebody like uh, Derek Chauvin, the guy who uh, killed George Floyd, yeah. and also his partners, that's why they were arrested, right? Arish but you know what's weird? Initially, they weren't. Uh, actually, I think they were suspended in mm -hmm. the beginning. Right. And people are like, what the hell? What are you, you know, what's going on here? You know, we demand justice, right? right? Eventually, they actually got arrested. And I, I don't, I actually don't know. I, I haven't seen too many cases of that happening mm -hmm. before. So, I mean, I don't know. Do you think that's a, a good sign? At least you show consequences for that kind of stuff. Yeah. Even though it's weird that they, there wasn't that initially until everybody got really upset about right. it. Right. And you know what's also interesting, speaking on Breonna Taylor. So the city, I think it was the city council there. So from my vague or vague-ish memory of it. So what they're now doing is they changed the law there. So they're still allowing the no-knock warrants, but now it's only if the person is like a suspected drug dealer, a kidnapper, uh, child molester, et cetera, mm -hmm. and only if they believe that somebody's in danger. My thinking is why the fuck wasn't that the case initially? <laughs> like, how yeah. is it possible that somebody was able to do that outside of those circumstances? So, I mean, yes, I do think obviously that's a wonderful thing that, I mean, yeah, these people should have been arrested. But my thinking was, I can't even believe that that wasn't the policy or these weren't the policies in place before. Like, I can't even believe that protests were necessary for this. Like, you've got to be kidding me. You could walk into, you could literally barge into someone's house without any of those particulars, right? Without that person being a drug, not even a drug dealer, whatever that means, right? A drug trafficker um, without being a drug kingpin of some sort, without sort of being like sort of suspected of murder, any of those things. And just barge into somebody's house, crazy stuff. So, I mean, yes, definitely arrest should have happened. I really can't believe that that's what it took. I, I just, I don't, I, I don't know what the thinking was there. Yeah. I think uh, with George Floyd, that whole encounter showed us a glimpse into policing and how it works and how I'm saying leadership has to be addressed first because everyone, every officer who was there participated in some facet. Even the officer who stood to try to make the civilian stand on the sidewalk, you didn't see anything wrong with him having his, his knee on that man's neck. Everyone who had a knee or had their body weight on George Floyd saw no problem with it. And I'm not saying everybody goes into the field of policing with ill intent, with I'm going to kill black and brown people. I'm not saying that. What I do know for a fact is that a lot of good intentioned get corrupt what my livelihood is. And again, I'm not justifying the behavior. This is just me trying to understand how this can happen over time. You go into it, we've seen it. And and what's the movie with Denzel Washington? Um he's a police officer. Training what's day? the movie? Training, Training day? day. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. And you see, I can't think of the guy's name, but he he wants to be a good cop. And you're <laughs> surrounded by so many bad ones who are telling you, listen, this is what's going to happen to you if you don't follow suit and do how we do. And I think this is what happens with really well-intentioned police officers. Sometimes those police officers, they get, they get killed in friendly fire that does not get investigated because they were on a force full of people who were, you know, opposing to what, to what their standard was. And now you're challenging us, so now we have to get rid of you. And I think that 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 is why I'm saying leadership from the top. This is what's being trickled down that put your put your knee on the man's neck. I don't care. Do what you want to do. You don't need a warrant. Just go ahead and go ahead and go ahead in the apartment and do whatever you need to do. You do all of this. This girl gets murdered in her apartment and everybody's allowed to go home like business as usual. The officers in the beginning with George Floyd went home like business as usual. People knew where this man lived and he was still allowed to walk around as if nothing, nothing was out of the, the norm. Mm -hmm. One of the other officers, I can't think of his name, a woman filmed him, I think in like Walmart or Target or something, walking around freely as if nothing had happened. Like he wants to go check his mail and that was part of his job to check his mail and to go home. And this is why, because there are no consequences. There's no consequences from their superiors and there's no consequences from the public. 
and what's interesting i think about that is also the fact that like what you're alluding to i know obviously i'm not putting words into your mouth so i don't want to say you said this but this is sort of my takeaway from the information is that's actually an indicator of psychopathy i mean a person who can kill somebody and then go to target the next day and just go hang out and pretty much do whatever that's literally the definition of antisocial personality disorder which is akin to being a psychopath mm -hmm. so if these are the people that sort of these people that these kind of institutions are recruiting then i mean again it really begs the question of how can literally how can they be reformed if literally we're talking about probably something like 90 whatever maybe not 90 but let's say even 70 percent of the cops 60 70 whatever who are like we you know talked about george zimmerman right sort of he also did the same thing he just kind of nonchalantly went about his life if we're talking about people who can legitimately kind of kill in cold blood and literally go about their lives that literally begs the question of who the fuck is administering these mental health exams i don't understand that like what psychiatrists are allowing these people to pass through and saying like oh, okay yeah they're mentally fit to be cops i just i don't understand how that can work right yeah more investigation needs to be done into this <clears throat> one thing that's a good sign is like yolanda like you said there is no consequences for these cops but right now because of all this media attention we're definitely making it into something right. that you can definitely get in trouble for and hopefully that's something that becomes more legislated and something where it's not just like cops protecting their own and uh because I, I know there's a lot of politics that goes on behind the scenes where people try to cover for each other or they try to write a report in a certain way mm -hmm. so this way one person doesn't get in trouble all that mm -hmm. i could get it from one side but again i and back to your question like can we actually make any kind of structural change, any systematic change. I think it's happening right now, actually. Yeah. I could see how you're not maybe hopeful about it because it's something that's been going on for many, many years. But if you really do think about it, have you really seen anybody actually receive consequences for their actions before, that's true. before recently? Yeah. I actually don't remember police officers being arrested or being charged for murder as like a big story. Yeah. That's a new thing, right? Most definitely. But here's my worry, though. So if we're talking about like nationwide protests as sort of the kind of forerunner of consequences, then again, right, if we're talking about psychopathy and we're literally talking about people who just don't have the capacity to empathize, right, or at least don't have the capacity to empathize with certain sectors of populations where we're talking about black and brown people, then the scary thing is what happens if there's nobody to give them those consequences, right? What happens if it's like the middle of the night and there's nobody around to film it? But pretty much police reports are, we just trust the officers, right? We just, the officers say this person did this, I mean, they're not questioned, right? So I agree with you. It definitely can go into a better direction, obviously. So stuff like that might be exponentially decreased in broad daylight, unquestionably, right? But what are we talking about when we're talking about sort of an alleyway, right? And we're talking about sort of the dead of the night. I mean, we got the body cams, right? I mean, I know when that uh, yeah. when they're, yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. that's true. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think it was off actually for the George Floyd um, situation, right? The that I don't cams. know, was it? I, I think, I I think it was. I I could be if wrong. I think had, I read if, that. if they even had them, by the way. I think yeah. Chauvin had his off or something like that. <laughs> of course. For yeah. uh, but if if I'm wrong, then I guess we could just Google it later. But whatever. Sure. But yeah, if maybe they need to create like a new situation where if you don't have your body cam on during something, you could get some kind of you'll be fired people should get fired. fired. You fired. have no okay. reason to turn your camera off. Fired. Okay. That's it. Your camera's off. You're gone. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that works. Um, one thing why this might keep going on is because since this became such a political, like heated political issue, mm -hmm. anyone who's going to try to get into political like places of power, yeah. they know this is something that the public is interested in. So if they want to be, I mean, I don't know how many people genuinely care about the situation. You know how it's like some politicians can be, not every politician's going to be like, you know, a saintly person, right. but including the people who are actually good and people who even aren't, yeah. they're going to be running with these things as issues in mind if yeah. they want to be voted in and they have to show that they're going to actually do something about this stuff moving forward. So, I mean, it is something that's going to be a continued issue that people are going to be very interested in politically. So maybe that's what's going to cause for more uh, consequences for these police officers. Right. I understand that's like me being like hopeful, 
No, you shouldn't be. I, by the way, I'm just, this is my perspective. You are. I no, no, no. Yeah. yeah. No, no, no. But like, uh, what else, what else can we do? I mean, uh, well, I mean, that's, that's actually a really good question. So Yolanda, on top of obviously changing around police leadership or um, kind of, I guess, restructuring it from the top, right? Do you feel like there are any other ideas that we can sort of implement, especially on the broader scale, not just within obviously policing, but kind of outside of it and things that just even civilians can do to make things better? I think building trust within our communities amongst ourselves, governing ourselves for sure. Um, instead of, I know like New York and New Jersey with these firecrackers, everyone, but firecrackers have been nonstop, nonstop, nonstop. Instead of calling the police for a situation like that, maybe we have men of our community to go out because likely they're teenagers, early 20s, whatever. In certain situations, we can handle on our own. We can go if there is a person that we know from our neighborhood who is mentally ill. Instead of calling the police when they're causing a disruption, how can we de-escalate the situation where we're not calling the police to rough them up, but maybe making a call to the emergency room, to the crisis, the, the crisis unit and trying to, to calm down these situations on our own. Not every situation involves calling the police. So there were some teenagers uh, outside my house a couple of weeks ago. I guess they had a party. It was about a hundred or so teenagers just wow. sitting on top of the cars, on the porches. And my street, it's usually pretty quiet. Um, just Teenagers everywhere. You know how teenagers are in the summer. Mm -hmm. And they're just making noise and shooting off firecrackers, sitting on the cars, sitting on the porches. And then, um, you know, you hear people saying, you should call the police. So I go downstairs. I'm like, we don't need to call the police because they're kids. Let's go talk first. Let's try that. So we mm -hmm. go out and I say, hey, this house is owned by a police officer. Um, he wouldn't appreciate you sitting on the porch. So I'm asking you, could you get your group and go wherever you need to go? And then you hear the sirens from, so the part of the street I live on is North. Past to the left side of the street is Irvington. So Irvington technically can't come to the North side to get them to move. And we're talking to the kids and they're like, okay, okay. But they're still teenagers and they're defiant and they're still on the porch and doing whatever. And then a fight broke out. And then so at that point, I'm not telling anybody to go, you know, situation and was killed because of that. So I'm not suggesting anybody go into the middle of a brawl to try to de-escalate that situation. That's something where you have the police who are trained, supposed to be trained, mm -hmm. to kind of break up a brawl to come in. And in calling the police, they were like, well, you have to just keep calling 911 because we're busy right now. We have a non-emergency number. So I called the non-emergency number and they're like, just keep calling 911. I'm like, well, nobody's answering. Well, keep calling. And that was it. And you have to call Irvington and say, listen, these are minors. If something happens, it's on your hands. And you have to make those kind of threats to them. And it took about two hours before anybody came. But just building a trust within our community, building a relationship with our children and their friends and their parents of our children to say, hey, even though I'm working overnight, Miss um, Mary down the street is going to tell me if you've been cutting up. Miss Mary down the street has authority over you if I'm not here. More so than don't say anything to my child, don't correct my child, don't. We have to get back to a time where, and this was relevant and, and it worked during times of segregation because we had no choice but to depend on ourselves. And if you look back at the time of segregation, Segregation is when the black community starved the most. We were self-sufficient because we had to be. Our children were looked after by our neighbors. You can leave your doors unlocked, and I'm not saying do that in 2020, but I'm just saying know that the person across the street is looking for you. The person at, at the bodega on the corner, and I know that is versa. Building that type of real community within the community is what can help to shift this kind of this, this culture of having police come in, especially police who don't live here, who don't know us, who don't look like us, who are already 
looking at us as violent animals, if you want to say, and targets that have to be taken down when that's not always the case. So if we can eliminate the frequency and and what we're calling police and the matters that we're calling them for, I think that will also um, create a shift in these type of incidents from happening. Yeah, absolutely. And so, I mean, yeah, so many kind of, I guess, different strategies and sort of different things to think about. And then, I mean, I guess, uh, lastly, the the thing that I think is also really important is, um, and I mean, this is a conversation, obviously, all in itself, so not exactly something that we're going to have sort of time to talk about in kind of in any intricate way, but um, even just combating racism, right? We're talking about on a community level. And so there was, um, there was this great quote. I'll just really read it really quickly before we go. Um, so this is from Elliot Aronson, who's a social psychologist, and he's talking about cognitive dissonance here. And he writes that cognitive dissonance is most painful when evidence strikes at the heart of how we see ourselves, when it threatens our belief that we are kind, ethical, competent, or smart. And so unfortunately, what that means is that a lot of times when people do and say racist shit, they don't want to admit it because obviously that goes at the heart of who they think that they are. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of kind of what we're talking about on a community level, obviously in terms of these relationships that we're fostering with people and obviously sort of building up our own kind of safety networks with one another, we're also talking about sort of combating racism within the communities when we see it. So um, just my kind of just, I guess, brief thoughts on it are essentially when we're talking about the person as they are and as they see themselves, we have to be really careful. I know this is a difficult topic. And obviously I know people sort of, you know, like, ah, why do we have to put up with racist anyway? I get that. So unfortunately, the thing is sometimes, you know, we're around people who are racist that we have to be around. And so the thing is when we're talking about people's self-esteem, right, the way that we would kind of, in my understanding, the way we would structure these dialogues is by allowing them to see that like, look, you know, even though we don't agree with beliefs or your beliefs, even though we don't agree with the way you're acting toward people, even though we don't agree with sort of some of the things that you've done and said, we do want you to know that in the context of how you were raised in the context of pretty much how you were brought up and the way you were taught to see yourself in the world, all of these beliefs make sense. So we're sort of differentiating between the explanation to say like, we understand why you aren't inhuman, right? Because of the context in which you grew up. But then on the other hand, we're also saying none of this is okay. So even though we understand that you are or you believe the things that you believe because of where you came from, we're also on the other hand saying that we actually need you to sort of change, right? We need you to be able to examine them. We need you to be able to accept that you've done some really shitty things in the past. And so when it comes to cognitive dissonance, the idea is that we're really quick to say, well, this person's like an awful person or they're an awful human being, you know, because they've said and done racist things. Unfortunately, that's really not the way to go because obviously when people think of it that way, what happens is they end up doubling down on their beliefs or they actually end up just denying them altogether and say, oh, well, I'm not racist. I have no idea what the snowflake is talking about. So we really need to start, yeah, we need to really start having honest conversations with people. And by the way, and this even means for us, like the people, you know, who are kind of on the left, being able to admit what we've done and said racist things to say like, look, we aren't sort of, we aren't, you know, we're guilty in some sense too. And so the idea is when we're talking about these things, we're saying, look, nobody's really the bad guy here. Nobody here is an awful human being. But what we need as a whole community is we need people to admit their shit. And this is something that Eric touched on, right? We need to have people who are able to say like, look, man, my biases have actually affected me. Obviously it was something that I didn't want to admit before because I was ashamed or I was embarrassed and I wanted to see myself in a particular light. But because I'm a mature person and I understand what's required of me and my community, I'm actually going to change the way I think about myself. And I'm going to try my best, obviously, to shift the way I treat other people. Right. And obviously this is a whole sort of education program. And I mean, I hope this is what happens in policing going forward. And again, going back to Eric, this is something that he said where, um, and just to paraphrase him, he said something along the lines of like, look, man, he's like, if you were raised in the Russian community or you were raised in an Asian community, you're not going to be expected or you shouldn't be expected to police a black community. That's just how it is. He's like, you don't know anything about these people, right? The idea is because of the way stereotypes work, you're obviously going to be heavily biased and you're going to affect those people in the community in ways that are so un- that are completely unfair. And so um, kind of before we wrap up, I guess, Yolanda, I wanted to know what was your take on sort of challenging racist stereotypes and biases? Um, I think what I said earlier, I'm not interested in changing what's in the heart of a person. I think that's number one, first and foremost. Um, speaking as a black woman, it's not my job to shoulder your guilt. It's not my job to, to put you on my lap and to explain to you why what you've done have hurt, has hurt me or people who look like me. It's not my job to say, you know, I'm hurt because what you did hurt me. 
I don't have to do that to sit and to explain to you why you calling the police on me because you didn't like the music I was playing at the gas station, which caused me to be killed. Um, because you didn't like the fact that I told you to put a leash on your dog where your dog should have been leashed. So you called the police on me, which is a situation that could have gotten me killed. Um, does so many instances does not mean I can't walk down the sidewalk or, or in the public park and have a photo shoot and you call the police on me because you know what the police will do in situations where people like me who are involved. I shouldn't have to explain to you why that's wrong. I should not have to explain to you that my reality in this country is very different from yours because you know it. You know that to be true. But because you benefit from the system and the structure, you choose not to say that's just not how that works. You don't have to like me. You don't have to want to associate with me, but you don't have to hurt and harm me either. So I do think that it's not my responsibility to shoulder the burden of your guilt. And I think non-Black people and non-people of color, it's your obligation to check your circles, to hold accountable your people, to hold yourselves accountable, to really dig deep into, you know, maybe, maybe I could have handled that situation a little bit better. Mm-hmm. I'm, in a, I'm in a car or I'm, I'm at the gas station and I see this, this person coming over to these black teenagers because she doesn't like their music or he doesn't like how loud the music is playing. And instead of saying, you know what, let me, let me handle the situation and let me intervene. Hey, Miss whoever, Mr. Whoever, don't worry about it. They're just getting gas. They're leaving. We don't have to make this into a thing. Holding each other accountable the same way that black and brown individuals, we should hold ourselves accountable for the roles that we play in situations for our responses and our reactions, we all just need to be held accountable. And, you know, like you said about the protests, not everybody was going there to be peaceful. I wasn't interested in going to a peaceful protest because that's not where I was. That's not the place for me to be. But had I gone there with the rage that I was feeling, it is the responsibility of somebody who looks like me to say, hey, sis, you need to go home. It shouldn't to come and rough me up and then say what people who look like me to say listen you tripping right now I need you to go sit over here for a little while I need you to go home you know what we're not going to call the police I'm going to take care of this one it takes for people who look like we do to hold ourselves accountable it takes like for people who look like you do to hold yourselves accountable because it's not going to be received people who hate me because of the way I look are not going to receive me saying hey what you're doing is unfair what you're doing is unjust. It's not right. And it's, it's hurting me and it's harming me. It's, it's, it's costing me my life. You're not receptive to that from me. You're going to be more receptive and inclined to listen to someone who looks like you, who comes from where you come from, to say, you know what? I, I get that that's how you were raised, because I was raised like that too. But they're not all bad people. They're not bad people at all. And you don't have to like them, but what you're doing is really wrong right now you're more inclined to listen to somebody who looks like you than, than somebody that you, you hate just because I'm this color. Yeah. So, you know, hold yourselves accountable. If you're going to be an ally, truly be an ally. Take time to understand what your history has been, how your lineage has cost me my lineage, and understand that just because slavery is over, just because you think the world isn't racist and color doesn't matter, that your everyday actions, your existence is, is very, very different from mine. You walking to the post office at six o'clock in the morning is you walking to the post office at 6 a.m. Me walking to the post office at 6 a.m. could be I'm outside too early and I must be causing havoc and can cause me to be killed and to not be home at the end of the day you mouthing off to an officer is grounds for you just going home pissed off because you mouthed off to an officer. But for me saying, why are you pulling me over? Why are you checking my car? Is grounds for my mother to get a phone call saying her daughter was murdered. So I want people to really just take, a, take the time to think about what their actions and their emotions and their thought processes and what really is deeply rooted in them, how that's affecting people 
other than themselves and outside of themselves. Yeah, absolutely. Beautifully said. Yeah. And so, Alan, before we wrap up, any final questions for Yolanda? Oh, yeah. Uh, Yolanda, <clears throat> if we wanted to follow your work, uh, where could we follow you? You can follow me on Instagram at The Sassy Rant, um, Facebook at The Sassy Rant, and at TheSassyRant.com. And also be on the lookout for Cocktail Conversations, which will be happening Saturday, October 17th, virtually this year. There's going to be a big announcement in the weeks ahead, so just keep an eye out for that. Okay, cool. Thank you so much for coming on. Insightful as always. Thank you guys for having me. Absolutely. We'll talk to you soon. Okay. Bye-bye. See ya. All right. That was awesome. It was a good conversation. Very. All right. Uh, if you want to follow us, follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast on Facebook and on Instagram and at Seize underscore podcast on Twitter. Uh, like, subscribe. Hit the bell. Hit the bell. Mm-hmm. And, and wait, wait, wait. And you can also find us at the O4L Online Network at O4LOnlineNetwork.com. And you can find us under the STM podcast section on top. And also, you know what? We got to give a shout out to our guys at O4L. Also follow Vegas Media Designs on Instagram. That's the guy who obviously is the founder, takes care of all of the O4L artwork, all of sort of the articles in the hip hop news section site. And also follow our guy, Andy O4L on Twitter, on Facebook, and you can follow him on Instagram as well. Mm. And guys, thanks again for watching. Look forward to our episode next week with Samir. Yep. So what? Uh, Samir. Uh, uh, Chopra. Chopra. That's <laughs> oh, right. that's what you were? I was like, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we we got to work on this before. Like, <laughs> yeah, we I say Samir, that. you say Chopra. <laughs> so, we'll be talking to him about generalized and existential anxiety and how he used philosophical counseling and just philosophy in general to combat it. Mm. All right. Thanks again. And see you guys next time.